0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine – It was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Byzantium. Hi, I'm Jordan Harbour. From the twilight histories podcast and i'm thrilled to introduce the history of byzantium and not just because i find byzantium infinitely fascinating this show is well produced it's well narrated and the research is watertight if anyone was to continue the story of rome where mike duncan left off and really honor the genre of history podcasting it was going to be robin pearson so without further ado Please enjoy the history of Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 72, Leo's Reign in the 720s. Throughout this podcast series, I've tried as much as possible to deal with things in chronological order. However, occasions arrive when it's simpler to split periods into topics and discuss them one at a time. After last episode's introduction to Iconoclasm, I hope you can understand why today I'm going to do things differently. We're going to cover the 720s this week, or really, the period from 718 to 729 will begin with the military and political outline and then return to fill in some of the details of Leo's administration. When we last left the narrative, the emperor Leo III had successfully led the resistance to the Arab siege of Constantinople and established himself, in the minds of some, as the legitimate ruler. Despite this success, the Byzantine Empire remained in a state of chaos. We know that Leo will stay on the throne for many years to come, but to contemporaries, he was just another usurper. The experience of seeing seven different men take the throne over the past 20 years had led the citizens of Romania to be cautious about accepting any new regime. And soon enough, civil war will resume. In the immediate aftermath of Maslama's retreat, Leo was presented with an unprecedented opportunity to attack the caliphate. There was little chance of meeting resistance after the catastrophic losses which the Arabs had suffered. The Roman navy in particular was, for the moment, the dominant force in the eastern Mediterranean. Leo ordered them to go on the offensive and they attacked the Syrian city of Laodicea whose harbour they knew they could storm. The city was sacked during the late summer of 718, while the theme armies marched back toward the Taurus Mountains. There they found that the Arabs had abandoned many of the border forts they'd taken during the past decade. The Roman troops reoccupied these strongholds, which included parts of western Armenia. The Caliph Umar had to send reinforcements to the cities of Melitene, ...and Mopsuestia to prevent further losses. News of these victories were offset by two rebellions closer to home. The approach of Maslama's giant fleet... ...had meant that communications between Italy and Constantinople had gone very quiet. In Sicily, the strategos Sergius had proclaimed an officer named Basil as emperor... And the Lombards had gone on the offensive, confident that no reinforcements would be coming to defend the Italians. Once the siege was over, imperial ships made their way to Sicily to investigate the situation. It's not clear whether Basil had been declared emperor out of fear that the Arabs had succeeded, or whether it was actually a reaction to the earlier deposition of Artemius the Secretary the year before. The latter theory gains some credence from the fact that Leo's agents agreed to forgive Sergius, the Stratigos, and only executed Basil, as any man who'd been hailed emperor already had to go. Although this sounds like a non-incident, it seems to effectively mark the end of Roman control over Sardinia, Corsica, and the other small islands in the area. Any troops or officials still working there had been called up to the Sicilian Rebellion, and were not restored. Meanwhile, the Lombards captured some forts in the south of Italy, further weakening imperial control there. The following year, 719, Artemius the secretary came out of his monastery at Thessalonica, seized the city, and declared himself emperor. Again. Artemius was the man who had organized the preparations for the siege with efficiency. And unlike Theodosius, the tax collector who replaced him, he had not wanted to give up power. Initially, he probably hoped to be restored by Leo and Artavazdos when they refused to obey Theodosius. However, once Leo took office, it became clear that no such plans were in the works. Once the Arabs had cleared the horizon, Artemius began making plans. Like Justinian II before him, he gathered a group of loyal supporters and ambitious opportunists in Thessalonica and made contact with his friends in Constantinople. He also sent word to the Bulgars promising great rewards if they would support him. This was a serious threat to the new regime. The Bulgars did indeed come and marched to Heraclea in Thrace where they met up with the former emperor Leo learnt to his alarm that several of his palace officials were sympathetic to their former master, and one of them was the new Count of the Obsiccion theme. Acting quickly, Leo exiled or executed those under suspicion and opened negotiations with the Bulgars, who may have felt insufficiently rewarded for their support during the siege. The emperor smoothed things over one way or another, and soon Artemius's head was displayed on a pole in the city, along with other members of the conspiracy. But if Leo thought he could rest easy after outmanoeuvring these conspiracies, he was wrong. Barely a year after their shattered army had come crawling home, the caliphate sent another raiding party into Anatolia in the summer of 720. Umar had already passed away, and the new caliph, Yazid II, son of Abd al-Malik and brother of Maslama, was keen to resume hammering the Romans. Some troops from the siege may have been spoiling for revenge as two large armies crossed the mountains. One raided deep into the Anatolicon, near to Amorium, dragging prisoners and booty off with them. The other marched into Armenia, smashing the Byzantine garrisons that had returned there. In 721, the Arabs invaded Isauria, capturing towns and forts, although the theme armies prevented them from getting any further. After this, the Syrian army spent the next few years resubduing the border areas which they'd taken before the siege. Kamacha in Armenia was taken... Iconium, right in the middle of the Anatolicon, was sacked, several frontier fortresses fell in 725, a naval raid on Cyprus in the same year did plenty of damage, and Caesarea in Cappadocia was besieged and sacked in 726. The Arabs knew Anatolia well now, and their raids were carefully targeted to do maximum damage to a particular area to ensure plenty of booty for their followers and plenty of misery for the Romans. That changed in 727 when a major force headed for Nicaea on the shoreline opposite Constantinople, as I'm sure you know. The city's defenders were able to successfully beat the besiegers back, a small victory which would soon be claimed by both sides in the iconoclasm debate, but staving off capture really was the best the Byzantines could hope for at this stage. In 728, another army sacked Gangra, and in 729, more border fortresses fell around the Taurus Mountains. Remember that all these places are on the map. The theme armies did make counterattacks. Even the Arab sources record the occasional commander who fell in battle, or the odd detachment that headed down a river valley and never returned. But none of these small setbacks changed the strategic reality of continuing Arab victories. It seemed that the siege had been only a minor check for the caliphate. The people of Anatolia had gained almost no respite from the endless raids on their land. Also in 727, another attempt was made on Leo's throne. This rebellion came from Greece and the men of the Caraviciani theme. Proclaiming one of their officers, Cosmos, as emperor, the fleet set sail for Constantinople that summer. I'll discuss their motives in a minute, but Leo was ready for them. He had kept the central imperial navy strong and loyal. As the rebels entered the Sea of Marmara, the men of the imperial fleet turned their liquid fire on them. This shattered the uprising in one battle. Those that survived quickly surrendered, rather than be hunted down and subjected to the flames again. Cosmos lost his head. As you can see from that summary, the 720s were not the time for Byzantine flag-waving and back-slapping in the wake of the siege. Instead, it was clear to everyone that the Romans still did not possess the Lord's favour and indeed that their emperor Leo might be a clever man, but he was not God's clear choice for the role. All of this meant that Leo spent the 720s trying to secure his own regime on the one hand, and secure God's favour on the other. Let's take the former first. As the siege wound up, Leo's wife Maria had given birth to a boy and around his first birthday he was baptised and crowned as Emperor Constantine V. With his dynasty in place, Leo also leant further on his colleague Artavasdos for support. The former general of the Armenia Khan had served in the palace during the siege and was now further awarded with the command of the Opsikion theme essentially putting him in charge of the troops who had rebelled multiple times over the past few decades and guarded the approaches to the capital. As part of the celebrations surrounding Constantine's acclamation, the emperor issued a new coin. As you can imagine, the quality of Roman coinage had been poor for some time since Heraclius had had to melt down church plate to mint his Leo's new silver coin is known to us as a miliarision. It was modelled on the coins being used in the caliphate, specifically the silver dirham. The miliarision was approximately the same weight and also followed the Islamic custom of having no pictorial representation. This was in contrast to Justinian II, who, you may remember, had the traditional image of himself on one side and a picture of Jesus on the other. Leo's coins had a cross on one side and simply the names of the two emperors, i.e. him and his son, on the obverse. The miliarision would become a stable part of the coinage and be minted more heavily by Leo's successors. You can see the coin at the website or on Facebook. And I should say that on Leo's gold coins, pictures of the emperors remained. Leo made two major military reorganizations during the decade. Both seemed to have been designed to curb the power of the theme commanders, while not undercutting the effectiveness of their forces. His first target was the Anatolicon theme. This was the largest theme geographically, and having used its troops to seize the throne himself, Leo knew the dangerous potential it offered its commander. So he took away some of its western territory to give to the Thracian theme and some of its southern lands to create a new naval theme. This latter move seems to have come soon after the Caravisiani fleet rebelled against him. And seeing as how those troops had also installed a couple of emperors of their own recently, it seemed sensible to further dilute their influence. The new theme would patrol the whole of the southern Anatolian coast and contain a combination of land and naval forces. Their sole priority would be to police Arab shipping and prevent them from getting anywhere near the capital. They were called the Kivirioton theme. You'll read it in English as Kibiriot. They were named after the coastal town of Kivira, where they were originally based. Meanwhile, a separate force would operate from Greece and keep an eye on the Aegean, and as I mentioned, the fleet at Constantinople would be kept strong and loyal. I won't be remarking the map just yet, as Leo's son Constantine will further tinker with the themes, and I'll wait till then to open up Photoshop again. Soon after the siege, Leo seems to have begun work on a census for the whole empire. It's an understandable move, given the dislocation and devastation of the last 20 years. Our details on how this was carried out, or when the results came in, are sketchy. But it seems like one of the first moves Leo made was to increase taxes in Italy, while not collecting any in some areas of Anatolia. Again, it's a logical move. The regions where the Arab army had camped needed time to recover, while Italy and Sicily were about the only places left that weren't suffering raids. Furthermore, at some point Leo announced his intention to collect taxes from ecclesiastical land. As you may know, most churches and monasteries were free from direct imperial taxation. They would contribute to the common defence, but generally the church had many tenants working their lands, paying rent, which went straight to the local bishop, and not the emperor. Understandably, Leo wanted to collect tax from everyone he could if he was going to pay for an army strong enough to withstand the Arab assaults. However rational a policy this might seem, it naturally caused resentment, as tax rises always do. We suspect that the naval revolt in Greece in 727 was provoked by this, and major problems were caused with Rome and Ravenna. The popes enjoyed considerable freedom from imperial interference at this point. The main source of their temporal power were all those farms who paid tax straight to them. Leo was threatening the very heart of this, and Gregory II refused to send any cash to Constantinople. This set off some angry correspondence between the two sides, but the emperor couldn't spare any men to go and enforce the measure. By 727, Ravenna had joined the Pope in rebellion, though no new emperor was raised up, thanks to Gregory's advice. Leo could still control Sicily and the southern parts of Italy, where the new tax policy was introduced. Eventually, a new exarch restored control in Ravenna, but Roman control over its northern and central Italian provinces was slipping away. That pretty much covers the usual political and administrative decisions of the 720s. But what about God's favour? How could that be won back for the empire? Well, like Heraclius before him, Leo attempted to convert the Jews to Christianity. Both emperors responded to the near miss of Constantinople being besieged, with the response that there really shouldn't be anyone left in the empire who didn't subscribe to the official religion. There's not much evidence, again, of how this order was carried out, but clearly something was done, and at least publicly, the empire's remaining Jews followed this new instruction until the imperial officials went away. They were not alone in this persecution. The Montanists were also forced to accept Chalcedonian orthodoxy. The Montanists were a Christian sect who believed in the continuing presence of God's prophecy, as opposed to the New Testament being the last word on the subject. At the same time as these conversions were being ordered, Leo also began work on a new law book for his subjects. It was now almost 200 years since Justinian's legal team had created their giant volumes And as I observed then, the fact that they were written in Latin was a distinct disadvantage for Byzantine justice. Greek was already the dominant language in the East, and by 700, the number of men fluent in Latin was minuscule. In addition to the laws being forgotten or incomprehensible to the public, the number of competent, legally trained judges had also diminished considerably. Out in the provinces, the men making legal judgments were the provincial governors, the local administrators, the bishops, or even the military commanders, almost none of whom had had any formal training, and so were making decisions based largely on their own common sense, or indeed, in the interests of their friends and colleagues. Naturally, this led to corruption and abuse. Leo knew about this first-hand, of course. He had been a provincial military commander. He wanted to curb corruption and produce a new law book, written in a language people could understand. Together with this noble aim, the law book would also reflect well on the new regime and help prop up imperial claims to be the guarantor of justice. The relentless Arab raids and multiple civil wars meant that many legal cases had been abandoned or left to wither amongst the confusion. Leo put money behind the project, insisting that all legal officers should be properly salaried to help fight bribery, though doubtless it still went on, and he gathered a team of the brightest minds in the capital to work on the new book. Modern historians also detect another pressure at work in this decision. Noise coming from the caliphate was critical of the absence of law in the Christian religion. As we saw last episode, the Jews and Muslims had similar cases to make against the apparent idolatry of the Christian faith. And as Christianity retains the Old Testament as part of its canon, it was a difficult argument to dismiss. Similarly, the Jews could look to their scripture for specific laws that governed all sorts of behavioural issues, from questions of justice to food preparation. The emerging Muslim faith had a similar attitude. Following the Old Testament at first, and then looking to the vast collection of hadiths to discover the Prophet's guidelines on everyday behaviour. For both religions, this gave their rules and regulations a divine sanction. Christianity was founded on far fewer rules. Jesus claimed that just by asking for God's forgiveness, men could be saved. With no concrete framework in place for how a Christian should behave, it was easy for the religion's enemies to paint Christian society as sinful and parochial. Men could do as they pleased, they claimed. Their refusal to obey the commands of the Old Testament was shameful backsliding into paganism. Once again, this attack hit a nerve now that the tide of battle had turned so decisively against the Christians. The Nestorians in Mesopotamia had begun compiling their own law books in the latter half of the 7th century, stung by the comments of their conquerors. Now it would seem Leo too felt that he should put his people on firmer theological footing. By heeding the guidance of their holy books, perhaps they could restore God's support for their cause. The influence of the Old Testament is blatant throughout the new law book. Finished around 726, it was to become known as the Ecloi, the Selection. In English you'll read it as Eclogger. The book was composed of a selection of laws from Justinian's code. Leo put his name to the introduction of the book, and it's a revealing passage. Naturally, he begins by reasserting his authority as God's vice-regent on earth. He then goes on to quote the Old Testament multiple times, pulling phrases from Solomon, the Psalms, and Proverbs, all underlining the right of God's chosen king to legislate for his people. More than that, though, he defines the law as the discovery of God, before he describes it as a social contract, and then defines his own role as emperor as being first about maintaining what was laid down in Scripture, then maintaining the acts of the seven ecumenical councils, and only third in his priorities is the maintenance of the law. He also states that the updated selection was being made in the interests of greater humanity, or clemency. In other words, that Christian principles, rather than the traditional Roman concern for utility, were guiding his changes to the law. He even explicitly says that he hopes that by breaking the bonds of wickedness with these laws, that he hoped to be victorious over his enemies. This was a self-consciously Christian law book designed, at least in part, to counter criticisms from the caliphate and encourage his people to behave in ways which would please God. The Écloyille does concern itself with reforming unclear laws, so we see rulings on unpaid dowries, loan repayments, or compensation for the loss of a guard dog. But what has interested historians ever since is the influence of Christian teaching on Roman law. For example, sexual activity outside marriage had never been a crime as such, but now it was. Abortion and sodomy were also outlawed. Divorce had been treated in the eyes of the law as more or less just another contract breakable by mutual consent. Now it was to be taken more seriously, as the church taught. Divorce was now only possible under four conditions. Adultery by the woman, impotence on the part of the man, serious slander by one party or the other, and leprosy. When you read a collection of the laws together, you get a real sense of Leo's legal team trying to create a Leviticus-like list of punishments. A man who commits adultery will be flogged 12 times. A man who sleeps with a nun shall have his nose slit. If a man discovers his wife committed adultery and doesn't report her, they will both have their noses slit. Homosexuality is punishable by castration. This was the first time that mutilation and blinding were written into the law as acceptable punishments. Cutting out someone's tongue, chopping off their hands, and burning off their hair were also included. Though it seems to us like evidence of the cruelty of medieval times... This was seen as part of the Christian clemency or greater humanity that Leo was going for. The most important thing for a sinner in the eyes of a Christian was that he or she be given time to repent and find God's forgiveness. Avoiding murder would allow these punished persons to get right with God. two other things may interest you about this new law book. The first is that in no way was it an attempt to replace Justinian's code. Although in practice it would be used far more often than the weighty volumes in Constantinople's libraries, Leo and his team felt they were issuing a guidebook, not a new law code. The Ecloi was a handy guide for our hard times. But Justinian's code was still seen, to some extent, as the law book of the Roman world. They represented the ideal state of Roman law, and one day, when the empire was less hard-pressed, they would be brought into use again. It's testimony to the achievement of Tribonian and the gang that the Byzantines would not attempt to replace or edit them in a formal way. The Ecloi was very much a stopgap, during a crisis. The second interesting point is that the iconophiles will ditch the ecloi next century and introduce their own updated selection to replace this one. Largely motivated by hate for the icon breakers, that revision will reverse many of Leo's innovations and restore parts of Roman law as Justinian had left them. With Leo setting himself up as a new Moses, or Solomon, with his law book, we come to the question of whether he was a new Hezekiah, as David Gillenhall put it. Was he now going to break the icons and free his people from idolatry as well? The evidence, as you know, is very thin. As I mentioned last episode, the eruption at Thera in 726 was said to have focused Leo's mind on the problem of icons. According to Theophanes, the emperor declared his intentions to remove all icons from Romania and then sent troops down to the Chalk Gate to remove the icon there. This set off the violent clash that I described at the beginning of the last episode. Leo then issued an edict against icons, which was responsible for both the pope refusing to send tax revenue to the capital and the revolt of the marines stationed in Greece. Such was the popular support. ...for icons. Modern historians like John Haldon... ...suspect that this entire narrative is false. That Theophanes was looking back... ...and ascribing motives to the emperor and his enemies... ...which didn't really exist in the 720s. Theophanes was taking the arguments of his own day... ...in the early 800s and applying them back. This may be in part a simple misunderstanding... ...of what really happened but was also certainly an attempt to cast Leo's whole dynasty as icon-breakers and demonstrate that they were resisted from the beginning. As we've discussed already, it seems likely that the troubles in Greece and Italy were to do with taxation and opportunism, rather than icons. There is no evidence that Leo made any official pronouncements about images, and the incident at the Chalk Gate may be a classic case of writing backwards to create a coherent narrative. Our meagre evidence suggests that Leo may have actually fixed a cross to the Chalk Gate. The cross had of course been a potent symbol of military victory since Constantine emerged victorious from the Milvian Bridge. But by Theophani's day, the iconophiles had put up an icon on the gate instead along with an inscription implying that the icon-breakers had once removed it. But it seems plausible that there never was an icon on the gate until the icon-lovers came to power. But Theophanes and others came to believe that the new icon was being restored rather than being introduced as a marker of new imperial policy. So, in the first decade of his reign at least we have no evidence that Leo did any icon breaking. Even if, as we will discuss next episode, the discussion about icons had now reached the public consciousness. That next episode will be the fundraising episode. I'll record another podcast in the meantime to explain the situation. There are several new things to explain about how you can buy the episode including a specific feed for the podcast and some bonus episodes to enjoy. So please give it a listen. In the meantime, why not check out the Twilight Histories podcast by Jordan Harbour. I've already recommended a couple of his Roman history what-if scenarios, and he has a new one about Julius Caesar escaping his assassination. But he's also produced shows about the First and Second World War, the American War of Independence, the Aztecs, the Egyptians, and even the Carthaginians reaching space. Go transport yourself to another world on iTunes or at twilighthistories.com.